When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Master Your Mindset Podcast. This is a spot to get your mind right. Can't just train the body. Can't just train your craft. You got to train the mind. I'm so excited for today's guest. We have Stephen Drum, currently living in Chi-Town. Chi-Town, where you at? He is a high-performance leadership expert, a keynote speaker, a peak performance coach, a retired Navy SEAL, 27 years, senior leader, um, owner of Breaching Leadership LLC, and future author, right, Steve? That's right. We got this new book coming out, Perform on the X. Can't wait to learn about that. But Steve, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much. Glad we were able to finally do this. You know, we were just discussing our conversation we had. Uh, was that probably two, three months ago? And so I was, uh, I was excited to, to be given the chance to come in here and chat with you some more. Yeah, and also your husband and father. You have a son and a daughter. I mean, we got five kids, so maybe we can talk about dad stuff too. But yeah. I want to just jump right into this question. And, and I want to start the combo with this. You told this to me. We met virtually about three or four months ago and maybe longer five months ago i don't know that this summer and you were talking about anxiety and like stress you know and you were part of the, the best warriors in the world and you said this to me and it stopped me in my tracks you said, you said colin a lot of times anxiety and stress in a group team environment is a breakdown in leadership can you expand on that a little bit yeah, I, and I have to remember exactly the context in, in, in which I said it, but in, in a lot of cases when you have, you know, a leader who is manifesting certain behaviors, right, it's, it could, could look like micromanagement, it could look like insensitive emails that just look like a total lack of self-awareness. And a lot of those cases that stems from a lack of confidence in their leadership abilities that stems from them feeling the anxiety and allowing that to drive the vehicle for them rather than being able to somewhat emotionally detach a little bit, take that balcony view and say, all right, well, how do I respond? I'm reacting right now to my environment. I'm reacting to my stressors, but how can I be more intentional with how I see the opportunity here and respond accordingly? And so I think when you provide a little cognitive distance from sometimes the environment, from that little kind of whirlpool that you're in, you're able to kind of take, press the pause button and be a little bit more intentional on the actions that you take, the behaviors that you take moving forward. Man, when you said that, I've never heard it that way, but I look back on when I was anxious, stressed, and like fearful and not present in a team environment. It was because there was someone that I was working with or working for or a coach that created anxiety in me because either they were reactive or I felt like they didn't care about me or they would nitpick or we didn't get um, trained, ready to, to, to perform at a high level. So I really look at people don't leave jobs, they leave people. That's right. So I think listeners of the podcast, you know, in if you're a parent, if you're um, a partner, if you're a leader, just be aware of that. How, how are people experiencing you? Are you part of the problem? Do you need to look in the mirror? But how about this? Let's just start, press the reset button. I love to get to know the backstory, man, about how you were as a kid. Yeah, I always say 
I like sports. My parents didn't really have, that wasn't really a focus of theirs. And so I, I, I am generous when I say that I was a mediocre soccer player. That's pretty much the only sport I really played. Uh, and I wasn't that great at it. I liked it. I enjoyed it. I wasn't terrible, but I wasn't good. I wasn't great. And, you know, I got into a bit of trouble. I was a mouthy kid, you know, didn't really do well at school, really didn't kind of find traction in any one area. You know, I didn't look at an area and say, that is exactly what I want to do until I got kind of to early on in high school. And I said, you know what, I, I reflected on the fact that, you know, I always kind of identified with service to, to my country, right? I, I always respected, you know, my heroes were the Vietnam veterans, the Green Berets, Army Special Forces, doing that kind of stuff. And I had uh, an uncle in my life, retired American Airlines pilot, former naval aviator. And he kind of said, well, what about the Navy? He kind of nudged me in that direction. And so I discovered the SEALs, Special Operations Forces for the Navy. And I decided, I read more into it. And I said, well, that's a some very challenging assessment and selection training. I'm going to do that. So I really childhood was I had a good upbringing, good mom and dad, uh, loving environment, nothing really, especially noteworthy there. I wasn't an achiever at a young age. It took me definitely some time to season and to mature and, and be better in the long run. That's great. So, I mean, tell me about that experience, man. You did, so you, you enlist and roll, give me the first like few years. And then you did buds after that, right? That's right. So it's so funny. I tell the story. I was, you take what's called an ASVAB test, armed services, vocational aptitude battery, right? It's like the SAT to get in the military. And from that, based on your scores, they try to nudge you in a direction that you're qualified for, or that you may be a natural fit for. And of course I joined the Navy wanting to be a SEAL and I missed, I was so bad at math. I missed the, the score by like two, three points. And I always say, I don't know if I was dumber for being bad at math or dumber for the fact that I believe my recruiter when he told me that they would waive those three points. So I end up going to boot camp. And long story short, I don't get to go to SEAL training. I end up working on nuclear submarines, fast attack submarines in Groton, Connecticut. And up there, I fell in with a former SEAL who had left the community because he wanted to move to New England to be closer to his, his kids after he was divorced. And he kind of took it upon himself to train a few of us up. And I really think it's like that whole, I'm not a big, I don't always say, hey, everything happens for a reason. But that two years that I spent up there, it gave me some more time to physically and mentally mature and be that much more prepared. And had I not done that, had, had my journey not taken me there, I, I don't ultimately know if I would have been successful or not. And so I went out to, to SEAL training 21 years old. It's, it's BUDS is what it's called, basic underwater demolition SEAL training. It's the six month initial selection assessment process with anywhere from 75 to 90% attrition rate. And so I was fortunate, lucky enough to make it through the first time. A lot of guys get rolled, get dropped, come back. I was able to make it through the first time. And so I uh, ended up on the East Coast SEAL teams. And that's really where I spent most of my career. Yeah, I'd love to dig deep and kind of go back to that. Uh, those three years, two years when you were 18, just, just before Bud's. Man, what what you learn during that that time about yourself? Like, what what like shaped you? I learned. I think the one lesson that stood out was I learned to commit to a path. Right. In a lot of cases, we say we want to do something. Right. We identify. I want to. I want to go to med school, or I even want to go to college for four years. We have a kind of very basic surface level commitment, but when it's time to put the work in. 
It's easy for us to sometimes to be distracted. It's easy for us to all of a sudden identify an easier, clearer path. And so we climbed down off that mountain and we head to an easier mountain to climb. And for me, it was, hey, I want to do this thing. And so that involved every single morning. And, and it wasn't like I didn't have some great workout plan. I just kind of pulled it out of my butt. And I was like, I got to run. I know I got to run a lot and I got to do a lot of calisthenics. Every morning I ran five miles without fail, uh, Monday through Friday. And every evening I would do my workout or I would try to get to bed early. And I had friends um, who had no interest in doing any of that. And they were like always trying to get me to go drinking, to go partying. And I had the ability to kind of push that away. And sometimes I would indulge on the weekends, but I could push that away and stay committed and stay focused to the path. And I think that was one big thing that I learned is that you have to tune out distractions. You have to be fully invested in the actions and behaviors that support your goals. That's it. So now let's just walk us through Bud, man. That is some crazy stuff. I've read about it, heard some things about it. Can you just walk us through? There's all these people that want to do it. It's the most difficult training ever, probably. Um, just maybe walk us through that whole process. Yeah. So it, it's six months and it's a little bit different now. They are always trying to tweak the process. And what they always try to improve upon is getting the right people through training. And of course, I don't know where we are with women going through now, but for back then it was, it was just open to men only. And it's broken into three phases. The initial phase, after you do some pre-training, they turn the heat on on first phase is what it's called. Shave your head. And then that first people ask me what the hardest part of SEAL training was. And for me, it was that first two weeks. Hell week didn't come until like I think the sixth or seventh week. And that's the most famous thing that people always hear about the nonstop torture, no sleep, frequent constant immersion into cold water. But that first, you know, one, two weeks, they had nothing better to do than to just, you know, really get rid of all the low hanging fruit that was only half-heartedly committed. And so it was a full on torture session. And for those who couldn't step back and say, Hey, and this is the ability that I had, I, I was by no means a superstar stud, but I did have the ability to detach a little bit and say, you know, at a certain point, they're going to have to start teaching us some stuff. They can't keep punishing us. And we're Steve, have to can, learn can I stop you? What did they yeah. do for those two weeks? Uh, it's a lot of, it starts off a very, I remember the very first intro, it starts off with a room inspection, which are also some of the worst parts in, in SEAL training. Every Sunday night, you have to paint your plastic green helmet, you sharpen your knife, you clean your life jacket, you clean your room, you have a, a perfectly pressed uniform and no sand in your room, but inevitably they're going to find mistakes. And then it's out to the beach, get wet and sandy. And you're basically wet and sandy all the time. And it's bear crawls, it's buddy carries, it's nonstop pushups and burpees. Uh, and then that starts to progress to like log carries and the boat carries once you start learning that. And so it's just nonstop physical activity, as well as one of the other things they like is called surf torture where basically you link arms and you walk out into the water. And for those that don't know, even in the summertime, the Pacific Ocean is pretty cold. It's average anywhere from like 55, 65 degrees. And you'll lie down and you'll basically lie in that. Those waves will crash over your face, water up your nose, and it gets to be a lot more than many people can take. And then it gets, it's so you weed out a lot of people in that. And it only starts ramping up and you have physical evolutions that you're tested on the obstacle course, the timed run, time swim, 
drown proofing where they tie your arms and legs, all that type of stuff. And you're constantly tested on it. And it kind of culminates with hell week, which is the main challenge mm-hmm. in the first phase of training. Yeah. So maybe give us some insights on the people that, that make it. Well, you know, I, I think there's some people who they have all the physical stuff, but really it's not as much physical. It's like, it's like the, the mental side too, right? Well, it's very physical, but that's not the difference maker. So you have to be in excellent shape. And so what they've done in in process improvement over the years is that you have a lot of pre-training. Now you have a buds seal prep, they call it, which is eight weeks of preparation. I think you're maybe tweaking that, but you get ready. And so what they're trying to do is make sure that a lack of physical preparation doesn't factor into whether you make it or not. And so what they try to do is level the playing field. And so when you go there, everybody's in good enough shape. And then it becomes, again, that mental piece. And it was always like, hey, it's 90% mental because you're all in good enough shape to do it. It just comes down to your level of commitment. Are you willing to do for the people to the left and right of you? Are you willing to put the needs of your boat crew, your swim body, the mission above your own personal suffering? And if you can do that, then you got a chance of moving on. Are you willing to go well past your preconceived beliefs or limitations when your body says no can you pull push well past it and if you could do those things then you move on to the next phase of training which is dive phase well tell me how how you were able to get through it what did you have to do well i to me i never got to the point where i was ready to quit training it was kind of like I don't know if you ever, if any of the audience members, the the oldest guy, guys like us who've seen that movie from like the early eighties Highlander. Remember when he's like that, he's cutting off heads. And every time he, he cuts off somebody's head, he gets like more powerful. And so I know it's kind of, it's kind of bad to say, but every time I'd be sitting there and they'd pull us out of the water, they'd be checking us for hypothermia and somebody would quit and it would make me feel stronger. I'm like, they're like, I can't, I, they can't do this. Well, I can, and I'm still here. And now I, it would make, it would strengthen my resolve even more. And so I, I think that's, you know, I, I had confidence issues. Like to me, this whole being a Navy SEAL was some great big mythical beast, some big dragon. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I can do this piece. I don't know if I can do the land navigation, if I can get through that part. But every time I, I went to go do it, it wasn't ever quite as bad as I had imagined. And it was never more than something that I, I couldn't handle. Yeah. I love teaching uh, people about the power of your inner voice, the power of self-talk, how 100%. your thoughts influence, you know, pictures you see, emotions you feel, actions you take. So what was going through your mind, man? What did you have to, to, to say to yourself? You know, I don't remember exactly what my dialogue, <laughs> and I'm in hundred percent in agreement with you. In fact, you know, you look back and I say, I wish I had, I wish I had known just how powerful thoughts were and in influencing your behaviors and your feelings and your actions. But back then, I think it was a matter of, I just want it so bad and I'm going to do whatever it takes. And I, I remember, you know, I tell this one story sometimes where they would do after a particular day, they would, you know, you torture you making you do all these push-ups and they call them eight count bodybuilders, which are like burpees. And then when you, you get to failure, then they put you on your back and then it's flutter kicks and all kinds of abdominal exercises. And inevitably there'll be one instructor who's circling around and he can't look at everybody at the same time. And so the game is that you lower your feet when he's not like you take, you slack off when he's not looking. Well, we start doing this and there's instructor comes from behind us that we couldn't see. And he just simply said, 
What if they could see you now? What if all the people that put their faith in you to make it through this program, your, your, your wives, your mothers, your fathers, what if they could see you right now putting such a half-hearted effort into this training? And to me, that was kind of like, you know what? What if they could see me now, right? What if I, I, other people could see that I wasn't doing what I needed to do? And I think that was kind of a, a moment that stuck out to me moving forward. Well, I've heard you say the word commitment multiple times, full commitment, all in commitment. And that's what you're able to do to get through. What do we need to do mentally, emotionally to fully commit? You know, one of the things that I always try to work with, and it seems very hokey, but it's essential. And it's the same thing I would do with the, the, the bud students. When I, when I was at boot camp, one of the second to last job I had before I retired from the Navy was to do this program where I would oversee young men and women that came in to do the physically, mentally challenging programs, divers, SEAL, special boat crewmen. And I would always work with them because, you know, we get them physically prepared, get them in the pool, get them on the track, get them stronger physically. But to me, it was really critical that we start to get the mindset developed in them, the mindset to commit. And so I would always tell them, and I do the same thing with people that I coach now or do workshops, is to get them to craft their personal mission statement, right? Because if we're doing anything of, of challenge, of consequence, of importance, of difficulty, there's going to be those moments where we face those obstacles and we face those setbacks and that doubt. And so we have to have the guidance, the self-guidance that comes from being able to articulate to ourselves, this is who I am, this is what I stand for, and this is how I show up to the most important people and in the most important situations in my life. This is what guides my actions and my behaviors with, in alignment with my principles, values, and beliefs. And so really, literally, it is a personal mission statement. And the one that I kind of use for myself is, hey, I work to get better every day. And sometimes it might be only a little bit, but I don't crumble when things get hard. I try to seek opportunity in all things. I exist to be of service and I try to do for the people to the left and right of me. And again, I fall short of that a lot. I make mistakes, but I try to hold myself accountable. I forgive myself and I try to reframe everything into the steps that I'm going to take to get back in alignment with those beliefs. And it starts right there with that character component. I love that. Well, how do we help people that we coach, lead, mentor, to find their, their mission. Do you have questions you ask or different? Yeah. I always like to say uh, exercises. Yeah. hundred percent. There are, let, let's try to draw out what, uh, what are important to you? What values are important? And one of the good ways that, that you can do that. One of the simple ways is reflect on the people in your life that you admire the most, right? The people that have mentored you, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's an uncle, it's a coach, somebody that you've engaged with. And what exactly are the traits that you admire, the traits of the attributes in them that you admire? Is it loyalty? Is it honesty? Is it follow through? Is it strength? Is it courage? Because if you start identifying those things, you're essentially what you're doing. You're identifying traits in them that you also find important to you. And so when you reflect on what those traits are, what, what, my, what my beliefs are, what, my, what values shape me, then that can start to drive, you know, what you put down on paper. And so you say, you know what, I believe, I believe in being courageous. I mean, that's an important value. And so when you see somebody doing something, you know, it, it, as a teenager and you know it's not right, 
do you, are you aligned with that purpose where you stand up and say, no, this is not what we're doing here. This isn't right because you're connected with those values. And so when it becomes a habit, when you know exactly who you are and what you stand for, you can constantly bounce that off of, okay, am I acting in accordance with that? Right. And it's so important that we do that because we do that when we're clear of thought, we do that when we're not stressed because when we're in the maelstrom, right. And stuff's going sideways and we feel like flailing, we have to have the ability and say, all right, what are we doing here? Is this who I am? Is this support where I want to go? And does this support my goals? And that's, that's important. Great. I love it. Yeah. So my, my mission statement is to transform lives and normalize mindset training. It's kind of one, a one B and my values. I talk about being a G putting God first and gratitude, giving, growing every single day. And I try to really think about that when I, if I'm speaking to somebody in a new environment, let's just, forget it's not you know you know pride for the person where it's about me it's pride for the purpose this is larger than myself it's not sage on the stage it's guide on the side what's about this bigger mission of helping people with their mindset and it's not about me hey team coach colin here if you're an athlete a coach a performer of any type you can't just train the body you got to train the mind right now you can go to my mental toughness training course and learn five mental skills that every top performer needs click the link in the show notes let's go do it um, I love it, man. So maybe when you got out of buds, tell me about how you moved out of buds and then you're a seal. I mean, congratulations, man. Like I said, one of the best warriors to ever walk the earth, dude. Well, it's funny because even then, even when I graduated, mm-hmm. it's so, cause I always had that, that little piece of doubt and it was, well, I'm not a seal yet. You know, you go to, you, you finish seal training and tell it it's different now, but back then you would finish seal training and you go do basic army airborne training down in Fort Benning and it's easy, right? They, it's the army. They, they figure out a way to stretch three days of training into three weeks <laughs> as we like to, we jokingly say, but that it's, it's not hard. It's easy, but then you have to go to the seal team and you basically have a six month probationary period where you have to prove that you belong there. And after, at the end of that six months, after you go through another three months of tactical training where you start to learn, because you don't really learn much in terms of tactics and things. You learn the very basics at budge training. Then you start to do what was called, it's called a uh, seal qualification training, but back then it was seal tactical training, three months of learning more uh, robust dive training, land warfare training and things like that. And after that, you then go before a review board and the senior enlisted members of the command decide whether you're worthy to get your trident. And for me, it took a year because I had, I had to wait around to even get my first uh, shot at going to STT because I was one of the more junior guys, but yeah. And so I always felt like, and it's, and it was good, you know, and that's a good thing to have because there's always, there's a, an old expression says you got to work to earn your trident every day. And that always is, it doesn't matter what you've done. It's about what you're doing now. It's about how you're getting better. Nobody cares like how great you were three weeks ago. What can you, how can you deliver now? How can you contribute right now? And so I think it's always a matter of being hungry, of driving to get better. And I think that's what makes us good in the SEAL teams. We're never content. We're always trying to improve upon the process. That's good. Now, do you have any stories of, experiences where you learned a ton or you know traits of you know like these great soldiers and great humans you know i look at experiences things you experience that you learned a ton and like just the traits of like who's in that group well i know there's the the one guy you know he has a an expression we use in seal teams called like your sea daddy and my sea daddy was was a guy named neil 
uh, nicknamed Fifi for those curly red hair. But I remember when I first showed up the SEAL team, it was not back in the day. It was not the most hospitable environment for brand new guys. I mean, you were like, you were, you were going to get the business. So you're going to be physically, mentally harassed and at, at the, at the best. Right. And so a lot of times this guys just want older guys just want to mess with you. And, you know, and a lot of that stems from the fact that they, you have to stay humble. You have to show up as a new guy. Nobody cares. You went through seal training. You have to show up with your ears open um, and your mouth shut and doing exactly what you're told. But one guy, this one guy would pull me aside and, and, and actually always try to teach me stuff. And months later, he jumped into my first SEAL platoon and he always was trying to teach me how little stuff, like how to modify my gear and just kind of being like that big brother that I never had. And so I always kind of with that kind of made sure, I think that was, that really made sure that I tried to stay humble, even when I started getting more experience. You know, even if I, if, even if I was harder on the young guys myself, I tried to stay humble. I tried to say, Hey, you know, it's not like you can't improve here. And I think those were some of the early, the early traits that I learned from that, from that one guy, Neil. That's good. Now, maybe my last question about your time with the SEALs before you transition to what you're doing now, but talk about like teamwork and how to lead effectively. I mean, again, you were in hostile environments, the best of the best, like what uh, traits as a team and, or the different people that were in that group, you know, like uh, how you were led, how you collaborated, how you, you know, how to process information, have your mission, but we're going to be flexible on how we, how we get to the end of that mission. You know? Well, there's a lot there, you know, and I think there's so, so many different directions I could go leadership, right? There's so many different rabbit holes you could go down. I will say the one thing that kind of jumps out, I just go with the first thing that comes to mind is as, as a senior leader in the SEAL teams, everybody's experiences are different, right? I had my own set of experiences, but when you're a leader in the SEAL teams, you're leading a very high caliber of individual who is very highly trained. And so when it came to leading in combat, right, that's the sexy stuff led, did this in combat. You know, you could envision, I, I inspired my men to go take that hill. In reality, that's never what happened. Like, the guys that I led, it was like, if anything, I had to pull back on the reins. They were, they were ready to smash the enemy in the face, do their jobs. Instead, though, my challenges came to when I have to take those group of guys and get them aligned with a mission that is not what they want to do, which is going from kicking doors in to go to train indigenous people, go watch their friends in the other troops. The other uh, SEAL platoons go do the sexy mission and they're stuck doing this thing. That's when it becomes very difficult to lead. And that's when the function of a leader is to really help to demonstrate that sense of purpose. And that's when you've got to be a lot more actively engaged when you're leading in a situation like that, when you're trying to keep the team short up. And I, and I think one of the when we were doing that and we started getting towards the end of our time in Iraq, we started getting more discouraged because the missions were drying up. And, and I just remember one of the guys said, he said, you know what? I'd rather be here doing this shitty mission with all of you guys than going off doing that sexy mission with all of those guys. And that was really a testament to the strength of the unit and how guys really felt towards one another. And I think when it comes to establishing a team that's going to perform at a high level, you have to set clear expectations. You have to set clear standards. And there has to be a way to coach people to those standards. But at the end of the day, this is the standard. If you fail to meet the standard, then 
we got to, we got to do something about it. We got, there's got to be consequences. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the big thing. Cause if you don't know where you stand, then it becomes very difficult to get the whole group along. It becomes very mm-hmm. difficult to hold everyone accountable. If the standard isn't clear. That's good. I just had a one, one more question pop up kind of the playoff of that last one, but man, you're in the, the most hostile environments. There's a lot of danger, a lot, a lot of risk. There's a lot of stake. And uh, you look at salespeople, you, you think you're feeling pressure. You think there's stress. I mean, but how did you lead yourself and lead others through like anxiety and like fear? I think there's a lot there and and there's, and I always say this, I, you know, I, a lot of people I talk to the most are, are in sales because it is really can be very high pressure, high stakes. And I always say, Hey, I'll tell you the story about combat, but as surprising as you might find this, the two situations are not that dissimilar because when I have to go out and on a stage in front of a thousand people and my slides don't come up or the power goes out or something like that, I'm not thinking about Iraq or Afghanistan. I'm thinking about bringing my A game in that situation. But I think when it comes to combat, it's about confidence. It's about being able to stay focused on what you control and not because if you don't stay focused and engaged on what you can control on what's in front of you, then your mind starts getting filled with negative thoughts. Then your mind starts to start to jump the consequence. And it goes back to that being the driver of the conversation in your brain. And so we use self-talk. I remember my very first gunfight, the, the, the simplest thing they the mantra that, that you learn in, in a combat situation as a SEAL is shoot, move, communicate. And so I remember keep repeating that shoot, move, communicate, which means, hey, I got to shoot, got to return fire. Very obvious, right? I've got to move. I'm most likely not going to stand here and get shot at. I have to either withdraw or maneuver on the enemy. And I have to make sure that everybody gets the plan communicated to them. Now, all that does is that keeps my focus engaged on where it needs to be, on reading the situation, reading the terrain, thinking two steps ahead of the enemy and not about consequences and not about what happens if I get shot. And so I think Mm. the key lesson here is fill your mind with the thoughts that serve you. And it pushes out the negative talk, the negative thoughts that can derail your focus from where it needs to be. I love that. Not think about the consequences. I I call these focus keys. Yeah. Now, what do you focus on in the moment to be present? That's really good. Okay. Let's talk about how you transition out now transitioning in that environment to now you're, I mean, you're a husband, you're, you're a father and you have to figure out now, what am I going to do? Maybe give us what, what that was like. Yeah, that's right. I, I was looking, I'm living up in Chicago with my wife and kids and I'm looking at getting out of the Navy and I'm like, well, what am I going to do? I really didn't know. I was like, I'll tell you what I don't want to do is go ride a train into the city every single day. I don't want to sit in a cubicle. And yeah, I can get my MBA, but man, it's the guys doing that are a lot younger than me. And so I was on my way out and I got approached to be a part of developing this team called Warrior Toughness. And with me was a psychologist and a Navy chaplain. And we were said, hey, we need to make our young sailors and officers, we need to make them tougher, being able to perform under the pressures of combat and dealing with the stressors of military life develop a program, right? Simple as that. And so we did, we developed a program and my contribution was to craft kind of the mindset piece 
And within that, we would onboard some of the character components, a little bit of that I talked to earlier, as well as performance psychology techniques, mindfulness training. And so I started really enjoying it and feeling fortunate that I helped being a part of that. And we, we took that program and we started to transport it out into export it out to other areas in the Navy. And so I said, hey, you know what? I can take this and I can translate this to the business world very easily. And so I said, well, why don't I do that? I like, I've always enjoyed coaching. I've always enjoyed being an instructor in the military. So, hey, how can I take this information and push it out so other people can learn from it and, and use it to be better? That's good. Well, can you give us a little summary, maybe some yeah. keys that if you could summarize it in, let's say three minutes, like what are the biggest areas? Yeah. And so I call kind of the product that I, that I deliver, right? I call it performing on the X and that X represents like you see a red X that's on my, on my branding material. That red X can be danger, right? And, and it's that scary stuff when, when the pressure's on, when we face potential of failure, but that X also represents opportunity. And so in the SEAL teams, when we're on the X, right, that's where we're getting shot at, or that's where we're landing on the rooftop of, of a building that we're assaulting. We literally call that landing on the X. And so it's those pivotal, critical moments that you have to gear your preparation to. And so I do that through, again, some of the things I talked about. Primarily, we start off with the character development component. We build that mission statement. From there, we move on to, okay, you've got the skills, you've got the knowledge, but how do we do it in the clutch? And we do it, and you're obviously familiar with this, Colin, is we do it with some very basic performance psychology drills. We do it with the right kind of self-talk. We do it with mental rehearsal. We do it with some of the arousal, arousal control energy management to make sure we can come out of that that red zone and back to where we can think critically and make good decisions. And we do some mindfulness training some way to lower that arousal, to sharpen our focus. And then when we get ready to execute, we keep a few things in mind, right? We make sure that we are grasping situational awareness, that we are developing contingency plans, that we are always light on our feet and ready to pivot. And lastly, we want to be very reflective. We want to check in with ourselves. We want to properly analyze and assess our experience so we can distill from that specific action steps we can put back into the next time we prepare so we can increase uh, our level of performance the next time we go around. I love that. Two things I'm going to pull out of that that most salespeople don't do. The first one is have training on how that, that arousal control. Most people, young kids, they think something else, arousal control. That's but, right. You know, That's why we had, we had to start calling it energy management. Okay. When you're talking 18-year-old so kids. I, I actually call it state management, like managing your state. So how can we help coach, you know, leaders, business people, salespeople have a big presentation. There's a lot on the line. We got bonuses. We got rankings. Like, how do we stay present? Notice the heart rate elevating. Notice your emotions, feelings getting out of whack. Well, again, if, if we see something, and this is why it's very important that we identify when, when it comes to managing our energy, managing our arousal or our state, as you said, we've got to look ahead and say, what situations are going to cause this? What situations could potentially throw me out of the saddle, cause me to lock up or, or just flat out underperform? And when we identify that, we backwards plan because the very first thing that we can do to enable our success, to set the table for success is to give ourselves a level of confidence. And the only way we can truly feel confident if we put the work in, in preparing. And so if it's a pitch, if it's a presentation, I'm sorry, but you got to put the work in and you have to rehearse. 
You have to say, all right, I've got to know my material in and out. And I'm going to actually walk up and I'm going to rehearse giving that presentation. I might even bring a friend in, somebody I trust, to hit me with some potential contingencies, to ask me questions, to assess my presentation. And so when I walk into that situation, I'm going to feel confident. Within that, I'm going to develop a performance statement, right, that says, that acknowledges this is what I've done to prepare. This is, I've done this. I've prepared this. I know that. I got this. I own this. And now I'm ready to execute. And within that, we've also considered how that life might go off script. And so we are constantly ready for things to go off script, for that to get thrown a curveball. And it's not that we can always have an answer, but we're always ready. And when we're always ready, it means that we can stop. We can take a pause. We can take a beat. And we can be very deliberate with what comes next, our actions, our behaviors, our words. And when we are really feeling those walls, when our hands are really sweating and our hearts racing and we're getting ready to walk through that door, we're going to lower that energy with some specific breathing. We're going to do what you know some people call box breathing. The, what we had prescribed in boot camp was to inhale for six seconds, hold for two, and exhale for seven seconds. And so we would go through that breathing. And before you know it, you start to lower that arousal a little bit. And then you go back and you reframe and redirect the thoughts that are in your mind, the thoughts that serve you, whatever the, the dialogue is that you've pre-built for that situation. That's good. Now, the other one that I think a lot of salespeople don't do or business people or leaders is, is that after action review. Mm-hmm how can we take what you did with the seals and then out in the field in our work environment and don't waste that experience. You can probably glean some good stuff out of there. So how would you coach us on that? That's hundred percent. And of course, now you, obviously you're in athletics and athletics is similar to the military and that we have, we have peaks and valleys in our schedules, right? We have the military, it's, it's train this, train that, and then deploy and then come back and, and recycle. Same thing. You have an on season or off season, but in the business world, sometimes it's nothing but output. It's nothing but production, but still we've got to find a way. And if you've pulled anything from our conversations, probably that I prescribe being more deliberate with everything that you do. And so when it comes to assessment and analysis of your experiences, be deliberate, say, okay, whenever we get done and whenever the three of us on this team, whenever we meet with this client, that client, that client, these are the exact criteria that we're going to measure our success from. We're going to, we're going to have a really quick huddle because we're on to the next thing. We're going to get right to the point very succinctly and we're going to draw out. So we already have a template. And so have a template for after every training conference, after every sales meeting, after every client engagement, have different templates that you're going to use and make sure that you're very succinct. You stay on point and everything that you draw, frame it in future steps, have all of your feedback point to what we're going to do. Now, there's times that we need to hold people accountable for mistakes that we need to document. But if we're really interested in process improvement, everything has to be framed in future steps and minimize the time looking backwards, minimize the what not to do, what shouldn't have done and reframe everything in the forward. And I think if you just take some time on the front end to design that and put that into your battle rhythm, then, Mm -hmm. you know, you're going to see some some process improvement. That's interesting about making it all forward thinking, improving forward movement instead of assessing backwards. I, the, the system I teach is good, better, next. Hope we do good or well, areas we can get better and what we do next. Maybe I spend more time on the next, you know, and, and assessing that, you know, uh, how you showed up. How well, you that's right. Yeah. And not to mischaracterize, you know, uh, um, 
not for me not to uh, wrongly articulate what I'm trying to say, but you are holding yourself accountable. So say you, whether you've done something poorly or you've executed at a high level, you still need to assess and analyze. And so you want to be, when something happens, the number one thing is accountability is let's get a good, let's get a, 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 as, as best we can, a grasp of the facts of what happened. Did we execute our plan? If whatever happened didn't work, is it because we didn't execute the plan or because we executed a plan that was not right for that objective? And so we've mm-hmm. got to know the difference between the two. But we want to minimize the time that we look there because when you give support other people negative feedback, they may want it, they may need it, but they also might put up barriers or obstacles that get in the way of them really seeing the value there. And so mm-hmm. then when we, we put that into, hey, we know what we've done here. Here are the steps. Rather than talk about what you shouldn't have done, what I mm-hmm. wish you didn't or never do that, mm-hmm. just talk about what you're going to do because that's, that's optimism. That's future. People will get on board that. I like that. That's really good. Okay. So I got two more questions before we wrap up and get your, you know, your handles and your websites, all that type of stuff. But uh, when you're coaching people, organizations, teams, leaders, like what are issues, some common issues popping up? What are some things that you're hearing out there that people need help with? And maybe and what, what's the solution that, that you've been sharing? I think a lot of it is they are just not as focused on their priorities sometimes, right? They're, they allow they allow all this noise to happen. And a lot of people have been reaching out lately to me about work-life balance. And it's the overlap, right? In some cases, what I see a lot of are boundaries being broken. In a lot of cases, like, hey, I'm on vacation. You're not going to, nobody's going to, I'm not going to be on my email or I'm after hours, nobody's going to be reaching out. But now we're more of a remote environment. I think it's more, it's people are more likely to kind of let that bleed into their personal life. And that creates stressors at home. And so what I always try to be is what I want to deliver people is something they can consistently use to manage the stressors in their life. It's like, so you could be father of the year at home. But then you go into the office and like we said, you crumble because that pitch just throws you out of the saddle or you're killing at work. You're focused. You're cool as a cucumber and you get home and you walk through the front door of that house and there's some screaming kids. I know you know the deal with that. Right. And the spouse is stressed out and you don't respond to that correctly. And so I think we use one common practice with how we manage that stress. All right. What am I going to face when I get home today? All right. I'm going to face probably this issue. There's going to be a lot going on. Let me get in front of that. All right. I'm going to make sure that before I go, I'm going to be very intentional with what are the objectives from the conversation I'm going to have with my kids. If I got a a call from the principal that day, what do I want out of this situation? How do I make sure that I walk in? I'm present. I'm focused. I'm effective. Uh, and, And we do the same thing either way. And I think applying consistent practices to being, to managing our emotions, to staying focused is going to build up our performance in both areas. So I, I, I like the acronym WIN. What's important now? Exactly. What's important, what's important right now, right in front of right. me. Focus all our attention on that. You can't control what has happened, what will happen. If it's at job, be at your job. If it's with your wife or, or husband or partner, be with them. If they're with your kids or you know a friend, let's just practice that that present, present focus. Um, dude, that was good stuff, man. But I also want to add to that is we also have to have the ability to to stop, right? Mm -hmm. Because, and I think a lot of cases we become so front sight focused. Mm -hmm. And again, that's why it's what's important now, right? What's important now doesn't mean what's right in front of my face. It Mm -hmm. means the ultimate objective. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So if I'm in a conversation with my kid that just screwed up, my ultimate objective is that I have a behavioral change, mm-hmm. not that I vent my frustrations, which I've been totally guilty of doing. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I would say, yeah, what's important now to, to, to meet the mission? That's right. What's the, what's in my control? Exactly. Right to meet the mission. So my last question, man, is about mindset. You have built curriculum. You've trained the best warriors in the world. You've been out training CEOs. I mean, executives, you're speaking in front of thousands of people. You're out there killing it. Um, but I have a company called Master Your Mindset. So based off of your experience and your research and being in the field and coaching, tell me, tell us how we can best master our mindset. Okay. So in many cases, when people look, you know, when you look at what people offer in the world, it's like, all right, if you just do mindfulness training, all right, if you just work on listening to your thoughts in your head and, you know, but it's, it's really all of that. It's really, I, I want people to look back and I, and I know and I, the one, my one contribution, I think when I try to engage with business, I'm like, look, it, think about how you might plan whatever you're trying to do, right? And we talked about that X, that X is your most pivotal point, your most critical moment, benchmark all your training to that. Okay. And so uh, approach that like a Navy SEAL would approach a mission. I know that sounds super cheesy, right? Okay. But uh, no kidding. All right, what's exactly required? What skills are required for me to do that mission at the high degree of success? Okay, what skills, what training, what tactics, what equipment, what resources, what rehearsal, what training? And then when I do that, what do I need to keep clear in my mind? Once I'm on that X, what do I need to do? What am I going to have to stop, pick my head up and look around? Is she picking up what I'm putting down? Is he tracking what I'm saying? Am, am I connecting with the people that I'm talking with, my client? Okay. And what, before I walk in that situation, what could be my potential contingencies? Where might I have to pivot? And if I tend to be someone who maybe talks over somebody, how do I make sure that I can stop and I can read the situation? I can be very deliberate with how I proceed. And then lastly, how do I make sure that I have a plan to extract the value from those experiences and put it, as we call it in the military, an after action report? extract the value and put it in deliberate step, steps to move forward. And I think it's that whole comprehensive process of being able to commit to the action, prepare for the action, execute, and then reflect. Yeah, this is what we call conscious competence, where you're aware of what you're doing. Self-awareness on who you are, the mission, awareness on your environment, awareness on the, the, the habits and behaviors, awareness on areas of improvement. I think a lot of us don't take time doing that. We are what's called unconsciously competent we have success but we don't know why yes having but having some systems some coaching some feedback loops um some processes where we don't just wing it i think a lot of people who are successful they're so talented i've done this for 20 years 10 years i just show up and throw up and i just there's no systems around it so i love what what, what are you leaving on the table yeah maybe you're succeeding but what what how much better could you be doing yeah, if you were more reflective and deliberate. Yeah, yeah, we'll have some, get some coaching, get some systems, get some ways to reflect, to assess. And you're probably good, but but good is the great stopper of greatness. Let's just not That's be right. good. Let's, let's be phenomenal. I well, love that. Well, Steve, man, it's been so fun chatting, connecting. I know we're just getting started. Every time I talk to you, man, I'm taking notes. I'm learning stuff. I'm getting inspired. And, and thank you for your service. Uh, this last week on the 11th, happy Veterans Day. Thank on Thursday last week, my friend. Uh, Thank was you. That, was that last week? I don't even know what day it is right now. What day is it? Yeah. Today? Was that, that last, last week? week? Yeah. yeah well, who, who knows when this will air? But um, yeah. how about this? 
let us know where we can follow you, where we can find you. I can't wait for this book to come out. Yeah, I'm uh, Stephen. That's where I go by stephendrum.com, S T E P H E N D R U M on LinkedIn, on Insta, and my website, stephendrum.com. So you can feel free to, to hit me up there if, if you want um, and follow me on Instagram. And I do a lot more on LinkedIn. But yeah, building that social media footprint slowly but surely. Build it up, man. You can, hey, listeners, get Stephen out to your company. He's the real deal. And see, we end every show with this truth. The body has limits, but the mind is limitless. Hey, what's up, Master Mindset listeners? Colin here, your mindset coach. I'm so excited. You can order my new book, Quiet Mind and Quiet Mind for Kids, right now on Amazon. Get the tools and strategies and tactics that I haven't shared on this podcast. So you get a mental emotional toolkit to lower nerves and increase unshakable confidence to perform at your best. I got Quiet Mind, which is for teens and adults, and Quiet Mind for kids, which is for the youngsters and parents. Our kids need tools today to be their best. So go to Amazon right now and get your copy.